this morning we're going to continue our series through the gospel or the book of Romans, uh, the explanation of the gospel of grace by Paul. And the second part of the message, and beginning in verse 18, the second half of chapter 1, is entitled, What's Wrong with the World? Um, <clears throat> some th people think it's me, but uh, it's a deeper issue than that. Obviously, the short answer is sin, but uh, Paul goes into greater detail about why the world that we live in is such a crumbling place. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and if you don't mind, would you stand as we read this passage on into the end of the chapter? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul begins by saying that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And all they, though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we <coughs> approach this very powerful passage of Scripture that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would help us not only to see how this is being fulfilled in the world around us, but you also might help us to diagnose our own culpability, how that our own hearts 
are drawn away and become attracted to these things, Father. We pray for your counsel, your wisdom, Lord, your discernment. Lord, we just pray for your comfort and your help and guidance. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Between verses 17 and 18, Paul makes a very sudden and dramatic, what I call a verbal, verbal pivot, if you will, all around a single word, the word revealed. And what he says in both 17 and verse 18 is that there are two things that have been revealed by God to mankind. And the word revealed is very important because its particular meaning is something that cannot be known until God makes it known. It's often translated as a mystery. It's, it's something that is withheld. So he says there are two things that God has helped us to see and recognize that unaided by the Holy Spirit, we would, it would just pass us without notice. And the first of these in verse 17 is the good news of the gospel of grace, that righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, later on, he ends the letter in chapter 16 by saying of this gospel, he says, which in past ages was kept secret, but now has been revealed, so that men did not see the grace and the glory of God in its fullness until Jesus came into the world and, most importantly, suffered and died on the cross for our sins. This is a grace that he tells us, and we'll deal with, dig into this deeper as we go on, but it's freely given to those who, by faith alone, have entrusted their souls to Jesus Christ. But then suddenly in verse 18, he turns to this second revelation, which really kind of underlines why this grace was so desperately needed. He says, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth through their wickedness. Now, few would argue against the notion that we live in a severely broken and dysfunctional world. In fact, conflicts of literally biblical proportions are rage unabated around the world, uh, lending a very literalness to Jesus' warnings in places like Luke 21, where he said that nation will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events. He adds, nation will be in anguish and in perplexity, and men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming upon the world. That, isn't a, uh, that is a fairly accurate description of the way things are. And it's interesting that despite mankind's best efforts, wars continue to metastasize, hunger and poverty persists, oppression spreads, and the best minds are perplexed. But this is... But the question we have to ask, are these things the consequence of God's wrath, or is there something more at work here? You see, we most often associate God's wrath with divine actions that He takes on the earth. We think about Noah's flood or about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and when He says the wrath of God is revealed, we automatically assume that we're going to see the, the fiery finger of God reaching into our world and beginning to strike men and institutions and nations to bring their destruction. 
But if you are a careful student of Scripture, one of the things you begin to find is that God's wrath is first and foremost revealed not through His actions, but rather through His inaction. Not through His intervention, but His willingness to not intervene. It's often revealed not in what He says, but in His silence. I think about Micah the prophet who was warning Judah about the coming invasion of the Assyrians and the destruction that was going to befall them in a call to repentance. And he warned them that if they didn't turn to God, he says, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. And at that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they had done. So the judgment God was said would come upon them was not that he would strike them, but rather that he would not stop the Assyrians from striking them. Rather than restraining evil, Paul said in the end times in 2 Thessalonians that God would simply stop restraining and he would step out of the way. This is his initial response to mankind's repeated rejection of his will and our choice to exclude him from our lives both publicly and privately. So that in the passage that we read, we find Paul three times explains God doesn't give it to us when we deserve it, but rather he just simply gives us over to our heart's desires. And what comes is a cascading series of negative and self-destructive consequences which he lists in order of idolatry, immorality, and ultimately total depravity. This is what is revealed from heaven, not from bolts of lightning, but from really the enlightenment of his word. It's statements like Galatians 6, 8, where, uh, 6 7, and 8, where Paul warns, he says, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked, a man reaps what he sows, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Where God simply says is, I will let you inherit the consequences of your choices. I think that one day, possibly when we're standing before the presence of God and we have the opportunity to view the panorama of our lifetimes, we will be amazed, hopefully with wonderment, at how God's hand had been present and intervened in our lives on repeated occasions and often unnoticed and unappreciated and unworshipped. But nonetheless, God's hand was there to preserve and to save. I remember one particular point in my early ministry where uh, I experienced... Uh, three occasions within a very short period of time where my life should have been taken. And I, I came within inches to death. I remember one time I'd run out of gas and I was riding a bicycle with a gas can to the gas station and my pant leg got caught in the chain. It was on a busy street in downtown Denver and I flipped head over the top of my handlebars, crashed down on the sidewalk and as I lay there I could feel the breeze of the car's tires whisking by my face and I had to sit there and say, stop, don't move think before you roll in any direction. <laughs> and I remember getting up from that thinking, man, that was like just a hair's breadth away from death. 
until not too long, much longer, I was working in a junkyard and I was sent out with a tow truck to pick up a car. By the way, I had never operated a tow truck before. And I was to hook up this car, and, and, and so I put, put the hook on the front and chained it up, and I was winching this thing up to the back of the truck, and the hook came loose, and that 25-pound hook came swinging back and just went right across my nose. And I thought, that thing hit me, and my head would have been crushed, and that would have been all she wrote. And not long after that, I... <laughs> came in contact with a junkyard dog in our junkyard <laughs> where I worked. It was one of those jobs you hate to move on from. <laughs> it was a dollar an hour that kept me there. But I just remember they, had, they would say, wait outside until we chained the dogs up, and somehow the gate swung open and the dog got loose. And here these very bitter, angry German shepherds came charging at me. And it was the strangest thing. The dog came running right up to me. <laughs> Smelled my leg and ran away. <laughs> I don't know if it was the urine smell in my pants that scared him. <laughs> I don't know if he said, this territory has already been marked. <laughs> God knows. <laughs> But on and on it went. And I remember thinking, I feel like somebody is out to kill me. Well, it was easy for me to look back and say, you know, it's obvious those kind of things happen. When my wife and I were driving home from a Sunday afternoon shortly after that, and, and, and I, I had this really, really uh, cool 57 uh, Rambler station wagon, um, <laughs> It had a 350 Chevy 357 in it, so the thing could really clip. And I'm racing down the highway and the freeway and all over town. And as we come, and I'm slowing down, driving up to the front of the little house we lived in, one of the tie rods came loose and the front tires spun around. And we just kind of came to a screeching halt. And I was thinking, moments before, we were cruising at 70-plus miles an hour on the freeway. And if it had happened then... There would have been no survivors. We had no seatbelts. My wife and I and my baby would have been dead. And those kind of moments come back to you and you just realize that God is this intervening entity, this power of the universe, who at sometimes will give you glimpses of how perilous your life is, what a thin thread it all hangs on, all to bring you to a place of trust, not terror. I'm in God's hands, that He is the keeper of my soul as well as my life. Because actually, all evil is essentially nothing more than the absence of goodness, the absence of God's good and kind and gracious and undeserved intervention in our lives. It's not simply because we're all sinners that God is angry. I mean, clearly, we're all sinners. No one in this room, I hope, would honestly deny it. If you do, I'll ask somebody who knows you, and they'll tell the truth. Scripture, scripture clearly declares it. Romans 3, we'll see, Paul says in verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. 
All have sinned, he says in verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. And he tells us we are sinners not simply because we have sinned. Scripture informs us that sin is actually a, a congenital birth defect of our souls. Psalm 51.5 declares it. I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, that I sin because I was born with this DNA of sin in me, and that sin manages to pervade every moment of every life. It infects every one of us, and it comes in contact with everyone who comes in contact with us, so that not only are we the victims of sin, but we all are guilty as well of having been victimizers of others because of our sin. The very thing he says in the last verse, that not only do we do those things, but we find pleasure in those who likewise join us in our behavior. And I don't mean just simply drugs, sex, and rock and roll, but just envy and hatred and jealousy, slander, gossip, backbiting, rumoring, and all the rest. We find a certain companionship in those kind of behaviors, often not realizing that those unions are knit within the pits of hell long before they ever came into our own hearts and minds. But what most grieves the heart of God isn't that we are sinners. What really grieves the heart of God is our pursuit of its pleasures, even when we know it's not wrong. That when rather than owning or admitting our sinfulness, our tendency is to embrace what Paul refers to as godlessness and wickedness, which has the effect, he says, of suppressing truth and its expression in the world around us. What do those words mean? Well, godlessness, it refers to an irreverence, a disregard. I, I used to always illustrate it when Pepsi had a commercial they called, I mean, excuse me, 7-Up had a commercial, they called it the Uncola. You know, it has no cola, never will. And ungodliness just simply means that, that God is not a factor. Ungodliness doesn't simply even need to deny that God is there. It just simply says, He's not a factor. I don't need to think about God. I don't need to weigh Him into the decision-making equations of my life. I just simply make my decisions as I want to make my decisions. And by default, I declare myself as God. I usurp his role as the decision maker ultimately of my life. It's no longer a matter of, but what does God want? It's just a matter of, what do I want? So that godlessness doesn't have to be some rabid atheistic rant or rage. It just simply is living my life, making decisions without thought at all about God. That wickedness means acting without regards to God's will. It's, it's not only saying that God's not a factor, it's even worse. God doesn't matter. If He doesn't like it, it doesn't matter because He's not going to do anything. He's not going to respond. I'm just going to live my life, and, and if He's there, so what? He's addle-minded and, and beyond concern. I will simply 
just do the things that matter to me in the way that I want. And the sum effect, Paul said of that, is it leads to a suppression, literally to repress or to hinder, to, to render inoperative, really, the, the will of God, the way of God. <laughs> the message puts it this way, that it puts a shroud over the top of it. It's the idea that if I have something there I don't want to see, I just toss a, a tarp over the top of it so I don't have to look at it now. Now it's hidden from view. It hides from view that there is a God and there is a will and a way that He has for my life and your life. So that oftentimes you hear the non-Christian say, why should I become a Christian? They're not any different from me, which isn't true. If you are truly a follower of Jesus, your life is vastly different. But when I as a Christian live my life in the sense that really God's not the primary decision-making factor in my life, and when I simply say whether I follow God or not, it really doesn't matter, then I have put a shroud, a covering, a tarp over my testimony, and I have resulted, resultant is I have suppressed the truth of God. And then Paul proceeds to explain the ways in which this happens in our world. I put it in really three steps. He, he, first of all, I, I, I would phrase it this way, that we deny the undeniable. We deny the undeniable. He says, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What's interesting to me is that if you talk to children and say, well, there's a God in heaven who created everything, that children readily respond to that without any serious question. They may have questions about what does God look like or where does He live, but they don't question His very existence because they're looking at a universe that is so large and so vast and so beyond anything that they can comprehend. They recognize the distance between themselves and the universe and the elements and things that exist within it. And teachers often find, educators find, it's very hard to teach evolution to young children because it seems so irrational and illogical. In fact, what we find is as we become older, we really have to strain our brains. And so you look at these presentations, these displays of evolution, and it shows this very concise, orderly row of evolution. It starts with, I remember the Museum of Natural History in Denver has the horses, the little tiny horses, and they get bigger and bigger, and the skeletals get bigger and bigger until you get to the end to the modern horse. And you look at it and say, that's so impressive until you discover that that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. That sometimes the big fossils were found on a lower level than the small fossils. That really what this display, this diorama becomes is a creation of men who want to present things in the way they should be. And you begin to realize that when you have these lists of different geological discoveries that the Pekin man 
doesn't really exist because even though he was supposedly dug up and discovered, he's never materialized himself in the physical world. That Australopithecus is really a, a partial jaw that was found with a boar's tooth, and they put them together and said, well, this is what he looked like. And you see these pictures of ancient people, Australopithecus, and all these different characters, and they're designed, and they're pictures of them, and we're just sitting there going, and yet we have no idea whether they had hairy bodies. These are artists' conceptions, and yet people embrace them because they're presented in such a linear fashion that we think, well, who in their right mind could deny the scientific veracity of all of this information because somebody with a bunch of letters behind their name told me it's so. I have letters behind my name, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and I'm all of them, all earned vowels and consonants. But he says it really begins with this idea that we, we look at the created universe around us and we know that there's got to be a God. and It's not sensible to say that there's not, and yet we find ourselves beginning to deny what should be undeniable. But secondly, he adds it to this that they became then unthankful. If God didn't make it, then why should I thank Him? He says, for though they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. And this begins to have some real significant ramifications in how we behave, because thankfulness and glorifying are expressions of worship. And essentially says, we stop worshiping God because we no longer see him as being the creative force behind everything. But you see, here's the problem. Mankind was created by God to be a worshiper. We worship whether we intend to or not. We worship something one way or another. We bow down to, we do obeisance to, we become the servants of something because God has created within us a heart of worship. When I think about our obsession with professional athletics today. Can I tread through a minefield here a moment? <laughs> and we find that our sense of well-being rises and falls with a win-loss record. What are we worshiping? I'm not saying don't watch the game just because I can't. I'm not bitter. <laughs> Jealous? <laughs> yes, but bitter, no. <coughs> not yet. <laughs> but you understand that there is this dynamic within us that God has created, a heart that yearns to worship something greater than himself. Even if it be beast mode, it's something greater than myself that I want to worship and look up to, and, and adore, and be thankful for. And God says, all of that becomes a replacement for me when it becomes to become the foundation of your identity. It becomes what defines you, that it controls your moods, and your emotions, and your passions, and your drive. 
It's like the gentleman telling me, I just can't, I can't read the Bible. I just can't remember it. I read it, and I don't remember it. And I said, did you catch the game last night? Oh, yeah, man. And he starts reciting to me all of the plays and the scores and the, where the different players are at and what their record is. And all. He's going through. He can remember every detail. And I said, you know what the difference is? That's important to you. You believe that that gives your life value. That makes your life worthwhile and importance. That's why you remember. We remember the things that we think are valuable and critical, and we forget through a natural sourcing process, of the, sorting process of the brain, we forget and cast aside the things that we think are non-essential. You see, I find that you remember what the Bible says when you believe that it is essential. You worship God when you re realize that your very life is sustained by Him. Amen. And you become a worshiper of God because it's just the natural thing that a person who is thankful does. Amen. But he goes on to say that instead they replaced the Creator with objects of their own creation, and this is called idolatry. That the works of my hands, in essence, take precedent over the works of his hands. And essentially, we end up actually worshiping ourselves, the things that we have made, and we begin to follow our own appetites rather than his will. And he goes on to say that their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for Images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, seahawks and ravens. And <laughs> you've just, you've just rec uh, experienced why I spent half my elementary education in the principal's office. <laughs> I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. <laughs> But really, what is it about? There are really three gods that people bow down to. One is power, one is possessions, and the third is pleasure. Those are the evil goals that take hold of our lives, to have the power to control my world, my destiny, my ambitions, my desires, to possess the things that I think will complete me and make me of value and worthiness, to experience pleasure are just simply not so much even the, we think about pleasure in the darkest form, but just pleasure in the sense, I do what pleases me. The kind of attitude, I live my life and I make my own decisions and I do what I want and nobody tells me what to do. Maybe that makes sense in certain contexts, but when it comes to God, my life is to be dedicated to doing the things that bring Him pleasure. As Milan the Favor said so well, pleasing you pleases me. So that not only do we find ourselves denying the undeniable and becoming unthankful, ultimately we begin to do the unthinkable. Dan Allender once said very succinctly, he said, when the unthinkable becomes debatable, it soon becomes acceptable. 
Chuck Swindoll said, once the true God and all reverence for him is out of the picture, everything becomes permissible, including sexual perversion. If we can create a God of our own liking, then we can create a life of our liking free of all moral restraint. And so essentially that's where the passage moves forward where Paul begins to say that God essentially gave them over. And again, the word, the phrasing literally means he simply says, I'm removing myself from the equation of your life. Your rejection of me has become so hardened and so consistent that I'm simply going to let you have your own way. How many of us have recognized with even rearing our own children or even working with certain people who are simply insistent upon their own way of doing things that ultimately the only thing that we can do is just let them experience the natural consequences of their own choices because natural consequences are great teachers that we reap what we sow and then we suddenly realize what kind of harvest we had been planting after the after the harvest is brought in. And again, he lists three things that he says, God gave them over. This phrase repeated over, and God gave them over. First of all, the, the issue of idolatry. He says he gave them over to sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity. In Paul's world, this was really entangled in the idea of the worship of the gods of the, of the idols in their cities. The word that is used, epithumia in the original, is, uh, well, Barclay translates it or interprets the meaning of this word epithumia or impurity, sexual impurity, as the passionate desire for forbidden pleasure, leading them to do nameless and shameless things immersed in a world unaware of God. We don't like to talk about it, but we live in a culture, in a world that is immersed in sexual impurity. It's a mouse click away. And it is nameless, and it is shameless. As I was following the news and kind of surprised that the pornographic film and print or, or, uh, companies are going out of business because people can get it free online. It becomes nameless and it becomes shameless. And what it leads to, he says, is the degrading of their bodies with one another Atimazo, the word here is, is an interesting word. It, it, means, it, it, it means disrespecting or shaming and dishonoring your own body. Paul said to the Corinthians, when a man joins himself to a, a, a prostitute, he says he becomes one flesh with her. He says every other sin that you commit is outside of the body, but that is one sin that you commit against your own body. And I don't pretend to clearly or completely understand his meaning there other than the fact that there is something about besmirching the very image of God that he made you to be. That somehow you're using your, your, your body in a way that tarnishes the honor and the dignity for which God created you and we make ourselves something less. 
He goes on to say, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served creative things rather than the creator. I love the way Peterson (laughs) renders this. He said, it's kind of pedestrian, but I like it. He said, they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. They they worshiped the God they made for themselves. You see, it becomes a form of self-worship. Idolatry is essentially an image that's created to look like my dreams. In the ancient world, that's what idolatry was. If you were in a, in a, in a cult that believed in fertility, you created this voluptuous imagery, that image that, that resplendent with the idea of fertility so that you have goddesses like Artemis who her entire upper body was, her torso was filled with breasts because that was the image of a fruitful woman, a fruitful animal, a creature that can bear many offspring and they, they worshipped it. It was, it, we look at it today and go, boy, that's a scary sight. You know, any woman with more than two is freak and she's got 22 and we don't get it. We don't say, I don't understand it. What's the attraction? And we miss the whole point. Their desire was to be fruitful in the natural sense, and so they basically exaggerated it in the same way that we find that sexuality is exaggerated in our culture today. I'm sorry. I don't get it. Why people do surgical things to enhance themselves? Isn't that a part of worshiping the creation? rather than the creator? Let me step through this minefield. (laughs) That he says, once they go there, the second level, he says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And the shameful lusts, he goes into into very clear detail. I, I, I'm staggered in this day and age we live that this becomes debatable, but that's the point, is in order for it to become acceptable, it has to be debatable. When bi- the Bible is just very, very crystal clear. Uh, and if this offends you, I apologize for offending you. That's my, not my objective. But if the truth offends you, then that's a problem you have with the guy who wrote the book, not me. Okay? Work it out with him. But he tells us what are shameful behaviors, that things, in other words, things that if we do this, we should feel the shame of our actions in ourselves, and we should fall before God in brokenness and repentance. He says women exchange their natural relations for unnatural ones, that they became inflamed, he says, in their lusts for one another, and men exchange the natural use for unnatural lusts. He said, men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty of their perversion. And I live, we live in an age that staggers my comprehension, that even within the church, not just some odd groups, but even within the church, suddenly there is an acceptance of things that God says are shameful. 
We, we don't respond often very well. There's lots of shameful things that people do. But what's dangerous isn't that we recognize that they're shameful. What's dangerous is we don't recognize that they're sinful and they separate us from God. What's dangerous is when we, we pass off our perversions as piety and we start saying things like, well, God made me this way. Nothing is more overtly rejects the creator than the misuse and abuse of our bodies in ways that God never intended. Whether it is heterosexual or homosexual or some other sexual, that I am behaving in a way that is contrary to what God created me for. And he says, if you do that, you will reap the consequences of what? Of your perversion. That adultery and fornication, lesbianism and homosexuality and all the rest of this stuff, he says, these are a perversion, a distorting of what God created. And he says, what that does is it suppresses the truth of God so that men no longer see the clear testimony of God. That God is no longer clearly revealed and evidenced in that which creates him. That those who are created to bear his image and reflect that image into the world no longer do so because it's being covered by something that distorts the image. So that finally says the third stage is God just gave them over to depravity, to a depraved mind. And what we understand is these things are not the mind of God, but they come from depraved minds. He says they do what ought not to be done. The word depraved here is, is our closest English equivalent is the word reprobate. That's the way the old King James translated it. And reprobate is a, an interesting word because it actually comes from the mining industry. That when they would dig the ore out of the mountain, it, you know, the gold doesn't come out in neat little nuggets or clean little bars. It is veins that are intermixed with all sorts of different kinds of stone and rock. And that has to be boiled down, has to be smelted. It has to be put into a cauldron and heated to 900 degrees centigrade, 250 degrees, 250. 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit to be able to make the rock melt. And as it melts, it's the impurities that rise to the surface. And they clean away the impurities and they do that over and over again until they can say it's 99.9% pure. Or as a silver smelter said, we know it's pure when we can look at the ore and see our, the reflection of our own face in it. silver and gold and others were called reprobate when there was so much impurity that wasn't worth the effort to smelt it any longer. There was just all rock, so little ore that was in it, it wasn't worth the time, the money, and energy that it took to heat it up and to purify it. And so they just simply said, it's not worth investing in any longer. It's been completely consumed by the corruption around it, and it's just tossed out as being of no value. 
Peterson put it really simply, he said, all hell broke loose. He said, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're gossips, they're slanders, they're God-haters, they're, they're insolent, they're arrogant, they're boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. That kind of caught my attention, actually. <laughs> we live in an age of technological wonder. We're finding more and more ways to do evil. So that those who are working on developing virtual reality as a household appliance, that they find, we find that the primary funders of developing this is the pornographic industry. Because what they discovered is they can create this virtual experience and people will revisit it and revisit it and revisit it and revisit it. And they'll spend endless amounts of money inventing ways in which they can do evil. Here's the one that I used to use quite often. They disobey their parents. And that may seem like a strange statement, but in reality, someone once put it really succinctly. They said, you know, you should honor your parents simply because you exist right now because of them. And yet we live in an age where we feel we have permission to disrespect our parents. And so we do. He says they're, they're senseless. I mean, there's no logic to their thinking or behavior. They're, they're faithless. They, they don't trust themselves to anyone or anything. They're heartless. They don't feel normal compassion. In fact, he says it becomes a ruthlessness. It's a ruthlessness. Sometimes I feel like we live in a ruthless world. And not only do they do those things, but they find pleasure and approval in people who do the same because you see if somebody else is doing what I'm doing then somehow that validates what I'm doing no matter what it is you're no different from me you're no different from me you do the same thing as if that makes it right what Paul was trying to really communicate is that there is in the mind of God the heart of God a place we would call too far when Solomon said, don't be over much wicked because why should you perish before your time? He was essentially saying the same thing, same thing that God said to Abraham when he said that the, that the time of destroying the Canaanites was not yet because he said their iniquity has not reached its full measure. But when it does, I will bring you back into the land and you will be my hand of judgment against them. But there comes a point where God just simply says, it's not only overfilled to the brim. It's overfilled. It's brimming over with iniquity. And when iniquity reaches its full measure, God's wrath will fall upon mankind in equal measure. So that when you and I ask the question, what's wrong with the world? The answer is a really simple one. The world has simply chosen to say no to God. That's all. What separates man from the animal? 
Well, people have puzzled over that. I don't know why it, it's such a difficult question to answer. I think I know the answer. You may want to get your pencil out and write this down. We had a moment of history. The difference between me and the animal kingdom is that God has given me a sovereign capacity to say no to His will. My dog cannot say no to God. My dog can't, has a hard time saying no to me. His orientation is to please me and make me happy. No. But man has this unique capacity that we can say no to the God of the universe. And we wonder, why would God do that? Well, because it also gives me the capacity to say yes. Amen. And the question you and I have to ask ourselves, are we yes men or no men? We take pride. I'm no yes man. Well... I, I think that's good if you're just simply saying yes and puppeting what other people want and you're a people pleaser and all that. That's, that's unhealthy and you're going to have a lot of problems in your life because of that. But if you're a God pleaser and you say yes to God, you'll find that often that doesn't please people. Amen. <laughs> but it pleases Him. Because God created you to say yes to Him so that He might have pleasure in you. And isn't that the essence of true fellowship and relationship? Amen. Yeah. Hopefully in a few weeks I'll get some time off and I'll visit my grandkids in Seattle and Nashville and I'm really looking forward to that. You know why? Because just being with those kids brings me pleasure. And God has the same orientation about you and me. That when we say yes to Him... He has the pleasure of being with us and us being with Him. That Jesus said in His great high priestly prayer in John, that we may be one, that they may be one with us even as I am with you. That we might have that unity of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would be compelling in our lives. That your voice would speak with so much force and so much more clarity than all of the other sounds that there are in this world. We live in a world constantly, a cacophony of calls and chaos and confusion, things that seek to draw us away, Lord. And yet, as Solomon said, that wisdom stands in the high places of the street and he calls out, and he says, oh, simple ones, oh, simpletons, turn away from your folly. Learn wisdom. God, I pray you give us hearts of wisdom. You give us hearts of discernment, hearts that have insight. Lord, that we would understand that there is a, there's a downward spiral, a, a, an avalanche that can ca take care of take hold of a life as a culture collapses under the weight of its own sinfulness and we can be pulled right into it not recognizing how it draws us. It all happens because we stop worshiping you. It all happens because we begin to make pleasing ourselves the most important thing in our life that we pick a church because 
it makes me happy to be there instead of saying, God has called me and it pleases him that I worship with these people. We choose a job based upon how it will forward our careers when we don't ask God, is this your will for my life? We choose a mate because we want them to serve us instead of saying, God, how can I serve you in this marriage? And on and on it goes, Lord. We, we really think it's all about us. We celebrate Christmas as if it's our birthday. And every other thing in our life becomes all about us. And God, you said you created us for you. You are our Father. Create in us a heart of worship, God, based upon how thankful we are that we have this moment to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue on for a few more moments in response to the Holy Spirit in our lives, I trust by faith that God has spoken to you in some particular and important way and that you not simply move on to the next thing on your day's agenda, but you take a moment to just sit back and really ask God, Lord, what do I need to hear? What, what in this is for me? Where is it I need to really begin to worship you and be thankful? These elements that we take every, every week, we invite you to participate, speak to something that we should be overwhelmingly thankful for, that he died on the cross so that my sins could be taken from me. And that I can have the, uh, uh, be righteous in God's eyes. And that I have the promise of eternal life. I encourage you to to approach the elements with that heart of thankfulness. God, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my sins. If you don't know Jesus, there's nothing we want more than for you to know him so that you can break yourself out of this cycle of destruction that men are drawn into. That you can have the Spirit of Christ living inside of you and He will give you the power that we talked about last week, the power to live a new life. That won't come from your willpower, but it can come from His. I'll be up front. There'll be some folks in the wings over here. Be glad to pray with you. They'll pray and ask God to bless you. I'll pray and ask God to bless you, and I may even bless you with a little virus as well. But nonetheless, either way, you're going to go away with something you didn't come in with. But respond to the Lord in the opportunity that he's provided for you right now.